Hi, welcome back to Adventures in Bad Parenting and Other Weird Stories. Quick caveat here before I start the show. I have a different podcast called That Doesn't Happen Every Day, in which I interview everyday people and get them to talk about things that don't generally happen every day. We have a guy who taught our one-room schoolhouse, a different guy who gave tours of a probably haunted prison as a teenager, and we even have my parents, including my dad, talking about living in Bob Ross's house before he was famous. He was their landlord up in Alaska. If you want to check that show out, please look at the description and click on the link I've provided there. Thanks. So, if you know me or even just listen to my show, you know I don't really care about sports, but somehow I found out something that actually interested me about sports the other day. If you're familiar with the Baltimore Ravens, the football team, do you know why they're called the Ravens? I always just assumed that Baltimore or Maryland had a lot of birds, a lot of ravens. It uh, turns out they were actually named because Edgar Allan Poe lived in Baltimore quite a bit and even died there, and he wrote that poem, The Raven. When I think of people that are super into literature or poetry or whatever, the last thing I think about are a bunch of dudes in spandex, you know, running around knocking each other down for a ball. And I wonder if I went to a Ravens game and started to ask the fans, would they know that? I'm not trying to demean anyone, but seriously, I just sort of wonder, like, how common of a knowledge is that? When I think of Edgar Allan Poe, I'm looking at a picture of him right now, and he, he you know, has on, like, a ton of layers, it looks like. You know, he has, like, a, a vest, and then he has a coat over it, and he has a collar that goes up tight against his chin, and he has some sort of, like, neckerchief thing. I picture every guy back then looking like that. They sniffed snuff up their nose and wore gloves, especially if they were going to touch a woman. They talked funny, and if they loved a woman, instead of sending an obscene picture on Snapchat or whatever, they actually wrote her a poem about, you know, how she was like a Grecian urn or something. It was a different time. I want someone to conjure Edgar Allan Poe back from the dead, and we'll go to a Ravens game. It'll be my first football game and his, and I will record the whole thing. I'll make a podcast of just his reactions. I can just picture Edgar Allan Poe wondering what the heck is going on. He'd just be like, oh, this is like, you know, vulgar ruffians or something. I imagine him saying something like that. But I would be like, no, no, Poe, they love you. To honor your name and your work, not only did they make a museum and save your old house, they also like to get really drunk and yell at giant men who throw a ball around down there on the grass. Used to be made out of pigskin, you know, just if that's not bad enough. And I just want to see his reaction. I just want to see what old Poe would think of that. You know, I could see him like looking at the fans and being like, you know, why does that one lady have her shirt off? And I'd be like, well, that's not a lady. That's a, that's a very obese man. I think in your, your time they would say well nourished, but yes, he, he does sort of look like a lady and he has a shirt off and to honor your memory, he's written ravens on his chest. Actually, he just wrote R on his chest and his other obese brothers who also look like women have written the rest of the word. Uh, as you know, because you're a literary guy. I could see being like, so, Ed, back in your day, before they had guys chasing the pigskin down there, how did you show rival towns that you were better than them? I could just see him being like, well, you know, if you had a disagreement with another gentleman, you would you would duel. I think it would be important to explain that, you know, pistols are a lot more accurate and a lot more powerful than they used to be. And so people, have instead of walking out, like, into the woods and squaring off at 20 paces now just kind of drive by and shoot at each other because it decreases your own personal risk quite a bit. But maybe he'd be into that. Maybe it wouldn't bother him at all. He'd be like, let's get in the Subaru, let's drive by, and let's let's uh, slay some brigands. I went online and tried to look into Poe's hobbies and interests to see if there's anything that might 
click, you know, that might interface like a Lego with his interest that you would see at a football game. Didn't see anything. Um, I, I can't, I think he liked poems a lot and I think he liked literature a lot. So I don't know if he really would be honored. He did like alcohol a lot, or at least I think maybe so much as like it, maybe he got to a point where he needed it to survive. So they have that at football games a lot. Maybe he would like that. I don't think it's good to, you know, conjure people up and bring them to Ravens games. But I did find out there's a bunch of Edgar Allan Poe impersonators. I don't want to pay these guys, but if you have money, I'll take one of them to a Ravens game and I'll interview him about what he sees and what he thinks. And uh, I think it would be a lot of fun. I think that would be a killer podcast. And I think it would help reach out to people who don't care about sports, but like history and like literary stuff and get us interested in sports if Poe went to a Ravens game. So today on this episode, I'm doing history stuff. I don't mean like the stuff about history people should actually know about human motivations and and economics and the stuff that's really going on behind the scenes. I'm doing the stuff that I can understand and relate to, which is usually kind of purient and weird and strange. So I hope you like the episode. Welcome again to Adventures in Bad Parenting and Other Weird Stories. Chapter one, man's best friend. When I was a kid, I was getting ready for school, and I remember it was crappy outside, and it it was cold, and I was tired, and I didn't want to go to school, and I look out the window, and our cat is exactly what I wanted to be right then. He was laying on the picnic table outside. The cold didn't bother him because he has that nice warm fur coat. He's stretched out on the picnic table, and he's like even spread eagle on his back, which cats don't usually do, but ours did, especially when they're really comfortable. And I just thought, I want to be a cat. They sit around all day, they poop all over the yard, and they eat and they sleep and they have no responsibilities. I was a child when I said that, but even as an adult, that's all I want. You know, even when our cats are throwing up in bed, they're just like, and and my wife's like, no, she wakes up from a dead sleep and grabs the cat and tries to get it off the bed as it sprays vomit everywhere. You know, it doesn't have to clean it up. Someone else has to clean that up. So even as an adult, I wouldn't mind being a cat. And I brought this up to my wife, how I wouldn't mind being a cat or a dog. Not when she was cleaning up the vomit off the bed. I I had the good sense to ask later how great that would be. And my wife said that would be nice, except for like, if your owner was really abusive. I don't know why my mind went there. I thought about a picture I'd seen of Adolf Hitler with his dog. And then I got all into this research. Adolf Hitler apparently had many dogs. In fact, if you go onto the internet and just search it, not only did he have the famous dog that I was thinking of named Blondie, who was like a German shepherd looking creature, he had several of them. And there's a whole Wikipedia article about his different dogs, which that, that alone is weird. Apparently, he actually really loved this dog. It got to sleep in his bed. Whereas Eva Braun, the woman that Hitler was involved with, it it doesn't make any mention of her getting to sleep in his bed. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but the dog sure got to. If you were Hitler's dog, would you know that you have an evil owner? We'd like to believe animals have this like sixth sense or whatever, or this sense about people. Shouldn't Hitler's dog have known, dude, you're a genocidal maniac? Or was he just like, Dude, you're the best. You give me expensive food. When you're not around, you have plenty of other people around to like hang out with me and take care of me. And I get to sleep in your bed. I mean, was that it? 
Like, there's just something wrong about that. That that dog didn't know how bad this guy was. I wonder if Hitler ever took the dog to any of the camps. Because you would think at some point, even a really tone-deaf dog would be like, this is terrible. Like, this should not be happening. Did the dog, you know, when he saw the horrible things happening in the camps, did he ever paw at Hitler and start whining? Like, hey, hey, you see this? This this needs to, what, what's going on? This is bad. Did you do this? Hitler was like, no, I'm, I'm, do I look like I'm doing this? And the dog is like, I don't know, dude, you, you seem to, you know, carry an air of authority around here. Hitler was like, well, I'm not doing it, just my friends are. My friends are doing it. And the dog is like, well, if your friends are doing something, would you go ahead and do it? And he's like, no, that's why I have my friends doing it. The messed up thing in looking at this uh, article about Hitler and his dog was that, you know, Hitler liked to have pictures of him taken with the dog. And his propaganda people like to show those pictures like, oh, he's an animal lover. Well, that'll cancel everything out. Oh, okay. According to the Wikipedia article, I'm reading it now. On 29 April 1945, one day before his death, Hitler expressed doubts about the cyanide capsules he had received through Heimlich Himmler's SS. To verify the capsule's potency, Hitler ordered Dr. Werner Haas, or Heiss, to test one of the pills on Blondie, who died as a result. What's weird is everybody already knows he was this terrible person that murdered all of these people. But then, for some reason, he just seems a little bit darker because he had his dog, who he apparently loved, killed. Which, I, I think that's really weird. Things got even weirder in the bunker before Hitler died. One woman who was working either in the bunker or in that area came out with a statement in 2005 that Blondie, the dog, her death affected the people in the bunker more than Eva Braun's suicide. They were more upset about that dog than than old Eva there. And oddly enough, they were upset about the dog dying in a time when, you know, the Red Army was coming through Berlin and, and working everything over and they were next, but they were really upset about that dog. Bear with me, it gets even weirder. Hitler's dog handler then took the puppies of Blondie out and shot them next. Don't know why. I, you know, it's just they made sure they were killed too. These were not the, these, this wasn't the enemy. These were the Nazis killing their own dogs. Even weirder, once the Russian intelligence people got to the bunker where Hitler had been, um, hiding out, they actually exhumed the remains of Blondie the dog and took photographs of it. I don't get why. Like, what? It's just, man, we gotta kill that guy and, and all of his friends and his dog. Gotta get the dog. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why they did that. What weirds me out even more is what if Blondie hadn't been murdered by Hitler's people? Like, what if Blondie was alive and well when they got to the bunker? Could they have just given her, like, a steak and petted her and taken her home? Like, can a dog start again after having such a horrible environment where it lived? Can it be given to just some nice, you know, Russian family back in Moscow and, and taken care of? Could they have given it to Stalin as like a trophy? I don't know. The whole thing messes with my head. The final thing on this chapter that messes with my head even more, you know how some people like to say that Hitler didn't die, you know, because I, apparently they all they found was like a singed, scorched body. Some people like to say, oh, he escaped the South America or whatever. What if not all of Blondie's litters had been killed? Like, what if she still has offspring out there? What if your German shepherd in your house that plays with your kids is a descendant of Hitler's dog? Anyway, those are the kind of things I wonder about. And if your dogs do have some DNA in common with Blondie, I don't think it's their fault. I don't even think it was Blondie's fault. So just remember their dogs and please be nice to them.
Next chapter in our history episode, It's Good to Be King. I had an encounter with royalty recently. It was at the mall in Cheyenne. They were doing a disability awareness walk. And what was funny is the mayor showed up and gave a speech, but I didn't really recognize any other dignitaries there. But then as the walk commenced and all of the people started to walk around the mall, I saw a woman, like a mother, and she had, I think, three kids with her. And all three of these kids were wearing sashes, you know, like an Italian, you know, prime minister or whatever. I was taping this event and I got close to the kids because I wanted to see what their issue was wearing the sashes. I don't remember if they were like Miss Cheyenne or Miss whatever, but they were those kind of like beauty pageant winners. This family didn't have any noticeable disabilities. They thought they were in league with the mayor. The mayor comes out and then some fake royalty shows up. You know, after we fought that horrible war to get rid of uh, kings and queens and stuff in America, um, apparently the local um, royal family showed up to <laughs> check things out and get some free donuts during the disability awareness walk. And they were walking around past the Sparrow and the pretzel place, looking down on their subjects. And so I just asked the woman in charge of them, you know, so what's the deal with the sashes? And one had a crown on. The littlest one, who was a boy, had on one of those crowns. Like when you think of a fancy velvet-lined king's crown, that's what he had on his head. He was like six years old. It was bigger than him, and he's trying to walk around with that. And she's like, oh, they won some beauty pageant, blah, blah. And she was really proud. It occurred to me then that these kids, though they may be the kings and queens, mom was in charge. And uh, I said to the little boy who was wearing the crown, you know, I think it's great that you're a beauty king. Uh, I, was in, I was in a beauty pageant one time. That's actually true. Not that I'm beautiful, but <laughs> and my high school had like a Mr. Mustang pageant. Mustangs were, uh, was our high school mascot. And like, it was just jocks. And I was somehow in the same building, like in the auditorium working on something when they had this. And they're like, Dean, you should be in there. And I was like, no, I'm ugly. And they're like, no, it, it doesn't matter that you're ugly. We just need like someone who's not a jock, like someone that can answer some of the questions they're going to ask. So uh, I was in the Mr. Mustang pageant. I didn't win, but there was a point where you're supposed to tie a tie. And um, I just tied it real fast because I've you know, been tying it since I was a little kid for church. And the jocks were like fumbling and tying themselves up. And then finally someone noticed, oh, the, that guy got it. The, me. <laughs> he, he tied his tie. Anyway, back to me talking to the good, you know, royal family of Cheyenne. I told the little boy, I lied to him and said, well, I won. I won my beauty pageant. And they gave me a cape and a scepter. And it went well. But finally, there was an uprising because I just started to levy too many taxes on the disgusting peasants, like those people over there by Orange Julius. I did not take their crap. I said, you will pay me. You will bow to your king. And then the kid's eyes widened and he got a little weirded out. And I said... When they stopped paying their taxes, I got out the guillotine and I was off with their heads because I am not the kind of king you mess with. You know what I mean? I'm more like Henry VIII. I'm not like good King Wenceslas. I take care of business in my town. And that was when the mom got a little weirded out and kind of pulled her kids close away from me and went on with her royal family and looked over her shoulder at me like I was a psycho. You know what, lady? I may be weird, but I'm not the one making my six-year-old son compete in a beauty pageant. Next chapter, Ghosted. When I got stationed in Germany, before my wife and son arrived there, I had to live in the barracks for a while. 
It was on Con Barracks. The name of like the installation is Con Barracks, and I literally lived in a spooky old uh, barracks there called Nine Bravo. I'll go ahead and put a link to Con Barracks and the supposed spooky things that happened on that base in the description. You can check it out for yourself if you like. There were rumors that Nine Bravo, where I slept and actually ate a lot of the time, had been an abortion hospital that the Nazis had used or something, and some people would wake up with a nurse um, covered in blood crying over them. And I'd heard a rumor, too, that sometimes privates would wake up in the middle of the night and all the cupboards in their area were open and they'd been closed before they went to bed. I never saw anything happen, and I don't believe there were any ghosts there because the people didn't want to be there. If anybody ever died at Con Barracks, their spirit is not going to hang around. We had enough trouble getting the live people to show up to formation and do what they were supposed to. I, I promise the ghosts will not be there. They are going back to the States. They're going to the bar. They will not be found anywhere on the barracks. On top of that, people would be like, oh no, sometimes you can hear troops marching outside that aren't real, that they're ghosts. That's BS, all right? If you do find ghosts, they're not going to be out marching or like patrolling or doing any of the things they were supposed to be doing. They would be in your room playing Xbox, all right? That's all I have to say about that. Next chapter, I love you, lice and all. So a lot of shows and movies depict people in love, right? I guess that's okay. But what freaks me out is how many shows that depict people in love before people got really into bathing and indoor plumbing, okay? I'm pulling up healthfacts.blog and reading a 2017 entry they have on here. It just says, in Victorian times, the 1800s, those who could afford a bathtub bathed a few times a month, but the poor were likely to bathe only once a year. So think about that. Think about that the next time you see someone who's just super attractive. You're going to smell them before you see them, okay? All of these shows like Deadwood and Sense and Sensibility, Dickinson and Bridgerton, and all of these shows show different people just doing an inordinate amount of flesh mashing and kissing and touching and just, oh gosh, I mean, they would smell like, I don't know, horse poop probably if they stepped in it and tobacco because everyone smoked and sniffed and... I don't know, put it in their hair. I don't know. I just imagine no one smelling good. And I don't care how good someone looks. If they smell really bad, our ancestors were gross. I think the one old timey movie or show I would like, it would be about like a female dentist, right? From back in the day. She's like a pioneering female dentist and she actually knows what she's doing. She doesn't just rip your teeth out and like give you an exorcism, but she actually like knew about oral hygiene. So it shows her brushing her teeth a lot, a lot, like three times a day, like normal people do now. And then like her husband guy is a doctor and a plumber, right? So unlike everyone else who sat around in their own filth, he had, you know, indoor plumbing. So they weren't pooping outside all day. They actually had indoor plumbing and he was like super into hygiene and carefulness. So he took a bath or a shower every 24 hours, and sometimes more often if it was hot, you know, like normal people. And because she's his wife, he insists if they stay married, she's got to do that too. And she's like, well, you have to brush your teeth too. You know, oral health is important too. So he has to brush his teeth. And also they have a car. I don't care if it's 1640, they have a car so they don't have their only means of transportation going and peeing and pooping all over the yard and the street and their house. And they drive around. Basically, it would just be us. 
it would just be normal people now who have good hygiene habits uh, and not horses and and who occasionally wear old time clothes. It could basically just be like a cute husband and wife, doctor, dentist, plumber team on their way to a Halloween party. And that would work just fine for me. That that would bring back the romance of the old ages if they're dressed up like Jane Austen or whatever. But they have the hygiene of, you know, hygienic people now. That'd be a good show. Next chapter, The Private War on Drugs. When I think of the 1960s, I think of Vietnam and lots of drugs. My dad got sent to Vietnam, and when they decided he didn't need to fight communists anymore, he came back to his own country and took it upon himself to fight drugs. He wasn't, like, a policeman or anything, but he sure inculcated in us that we should never, ever try drugs. His first act in his own personal drug war. I wasn't there for this because I was too young, but my older relatives said that my dad was at a carnival, and as they described it, a long-haired hippie was spinning around on some ride, and out of his pocket fell a bag of drugs. I think it was marijuana. Hopefully it wasn't like, you know, prescription pills the guys actually needed. No, I think it was it was pot. And my dad saw this and stuck out his foot and dug the guy's bag of marijuana into the dirt with his, his boot. <laughs> so my dad was counting coup that day for the the conservative league there. And the guy, when he finished riding his, his ride, I don't know if he was high or not, but he got off and had the presence of mind to start like looking for his drugs. I guess he was like self-frisking. He was like, oh crap, where is it? And he starts looking around all over the ground. And my dad, I guess, just glared at him with his boot on the guy's drugs still grinding <laughs> into the ground. And I was like, so did the hippie say anything to you, dad? He's like, no, but he sure was looking for his drugs. And I wasn't going to move my boot. My dad's favorite activity when he was driving, some people listen to the radio, some people talk to the people in the car. My dad's favorite thing to do when he was driving was to guess if other people around him were on drugs. It wasn't really like a guess so much as an assertion. He would be thinking about turning left, but the oncoming car would be going a little fast. And for some reason, regardless, if you're not sure, you just shouldn't turn left. But my dad would put it out there. Uh, Maybe I should go, but uh, I'm not going to go. That one there might be high on LSD. Growing up with this man, I thought every car around us was just full of drug-filled LSD people that wanted to hit us with their cars. My sister came home from college. She went to Brigham Young University, not exactly a hot spot for drugs, but even she had the presence of mind to say to my dad one time when he guessed someone in the car next to us might be on LSD, Dad, I don't think people use LSD anymore. I think that was like a 60s thing. I don't know, we have three very uninformed, very conservative people in a car, so none of us knew, but I thought that was funny she made that point. One time, I mentioned that someone at school had said they thought they should legalize marijuana. I didn't say I thought this was a good idea, I just mentioned someone brought this up. And my dad said, you get one of these drug heads to grab you and hurt you, you'll change your mind. (laughs) So, um, you know, Owen was very much into capturing or at least terrifying the hearts and minds of his children in his private war on drugs. For some reason, too, my parents, though they were actually doing fine, chose to live out in the country, I think I've mentioned this before, where there were always problems, and ironically, meth labs. And my mom was a teacher, and to help as an auxiliary to the war on drugs, they would do like dare week and stuff at the school she was teaching at. And one time, uh, it had been a long day, and my mom said, I don't want the kids to ever talk about drugs at school again. 
was like, what, you mean like they were talking about buying them or using them? She's like, no, no, it's just whenever the police come and talk about how dangerous it is to use drugs, I always have at least one kid who starts crying and bawling because even they know their parents are on drugs. My dad's fury in the drug war, you know, it never, it never went away, but it did like calm down a little to the point where he would even make jokes about it. Like one time I'm like probably 14 and I'm terrified to get on an airplane, but my dad and me and my mom are all waiting to get on an airplane. I'm the one that's like white knuckling and they come over the loudspeaker by the gate, I guess. And we're like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, blah, blah, blah. We will board soon. We're sorry about the delay. The pilot is still working on some paperwork. I'm hyped up and scared enough already. I'm like, you know, well, crap, what kind of paperwork does he need to do? I'm just picturing like a nervous, sweaty pilot in his pilot outfit and his pilot hat in a back room somewhere. And he's taking a test and it's being proctored by a guy with those creepy glasses and a toothbrush mustache. And he has on, you know, one of those IDs and a clip on tie. And the pilot's like sweating, trying to figure out what he has to do to pass this multiple choice test to be able to fly the plane, you know, like you do at the DMV. I'm nervous enough already, but my dad says really loud and (laughs) he's probably really in the bathroom smoking marijuana before he flies the plane. (laughs) And I guess my dad learned to just let life be what it's going to be some and scare the living crap out of me and all the other passengers around us. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed Adventures in Bad Parenting and other weird stories. Again, please check out the link to that new podcast. It's in the description or just search for That Doesn't Happen Every Day, Dean Peterson. Whether you're against drugs or have Hitler's dog's offspring living with you, being a parent is hard. Hang in there.